Welcome to the St. Mark's Lutheran Church by the Narrows podcast channel. This podcast is part of our Bible study series, The Waters of Shiloh, which takes us through the first 12 chapters of Isaiah and is led by Pastor Mark Gravrock. And now, here's Pastor Mark with an opening song. Waters of Shiloh, gentle flowing true. Waters of Shiloh, always enough for you. Child, will you trust me when the storms draw near? Waters of Shiloh, flowing fresh and clear. Gracious God, our constant waters of Shiloh, Thank you for your constancy and your love and your trustworthiness. Now as we enter this book of Isaiah, Lord, we ask your guidance and the direction of your Holy Spirit. Open to us your call to trust you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. Session number one, like, like a shelter in a cucumber field. First couple of chapters of Isaiah. We're going to begin with, uh, with looking at chapter 1, and I think I may have used this one time before as an example of how to read, uh, how to read the poetry of the Bible. Uh, so if anything's a little familiar, too bad. <laughs> um, if, you have, if you have access to a Bible, Isaiah chapter 1. And if you don't know where Isaiah is, there's a table of contents in the beginning. It's not too long after Psalms. The prophets write in poetry, or they speak in poetry, which struck me as kind of weird the first time I saw that. And we've talked before about poetry and how some of us like poetry and some of us hate poetry. Uh, but let me ask, just ask the question, what's, what does poetry do that prose can't do? Feelings. It gives you feelings instead of just narrative. It can give you feelings rather than just narrative. It can be more graphic. Mm -hmm. If I ask the question another way, why wouldn't the, if the prophets are here to deliver a message from God, why don't they just say the message? Why don't they just say, "Here's what God has to say"? A B C D E. Amen. Because God needs to speak across the ages, and just to say A, B, C, D, E, one way may not mean this mean the same thing in another another time, and so it's intentionally ambiguous. You want God's word to be ambiguous? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> well, it often offers some kind of a little music that can touch your inner parts to listen to. Poetry, like music, can, can touch our inner parts in a way that simple statement can't as easily do. Rhythm and rhyme add a lot. Mm -hmm. Rhythm and rhyme add a lot. Add a lot, yes they do, both in terms of memory and in terms of just bringing us into it to hear it. Okay. I'll come back to that question in a little bit. We're going we're to use chapter 1 of Isaiah to explore some of what makes it difficult to read the Old Testament, some of, or, and the poetry in particular, but some clues as to how it works, because this is going to be key to reading not only Isaiah, but in all the, all the prophetic, all the poetic books of the Old Testament. To start with, um, I won't ask anybody to read verse 1 out loud, because it's got all those names in it. The vision of Isaiah, son of Amos, which he saw, concern, this is interesting that this is something that Isaiah saw, concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. You know all those characters really well, right? Yeah? Okay. Here they are. I expect you to memorize this for next time. Um, at this time, the, the kingdom of Israel had been divided into two kingdoms for quite some time. The northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, is where, where um, Isaiah is located. He's in Jerusalem. Four kings 
that reigned during the time of Isaiah's work. Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Uh, the time that these chapters are focusing on is kind of in the middle of that for the most part. In the same time in the north, the north has had a really stable dynasty for about 50 years. Uh, very stable and strong and powerful. And all of a sudden, here's this Zechariah is the last of that stable dynasty. He lasts less than a year because somebody killed him. His name was Shalom. Shalom lasted a month and somebody killed him. <laughs> Menachem lasted a while and actually passed the kingdom on to his son Pekahiah and somebody killed him. And then came Pekah and then Hosea killed him. Why do you suppose all this killing is going on? All of, after a half century of real stability? We'll look at this more later, but not today. Any guesses? Power. There are power grabs going on, and you've got two different parties vying for power. And behind them is an invasion that's happening, and what to do about this invasion. And so after a half century of stability, the northern kingdom is really falling apart, with two, two ways of dealing with that invading power, grasping for control, and killing each other off in the process. You don't have to memorize all that. But, just, but the very first thing about reading biblical narrative and biblical poetry is that there will be historical allusions. Now that first verse is not poetry, it's just a statement. Um, and to, to mark those kings sets this in an historical context. We'll learn a little bit of that. There's plenty more that you can learn elsewhere if you wish. But to know where this is happening and when and why makes a difference in what you hear. Then we move into then we move into the poetry. Hear, O heavens, and listen, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, the donkey knows its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. A couple of features here going on. Oh, I forgot to mention that. In chapter 6, we'll hit, in the year King Uzziah died. That's when Isaiah has his vision of the temple. And then there's, in chapters 7 and 8, we'll be dealing with a war that takes place during Ahaz's time. Okay, three things about poetry, biblical poetry in particular. One is allusion, alluding to other times and places and events. And so, for example, if I say to you, 9-11, what do you think? Yeah, the towers, the flames, the planes, all that horror. If I, if, if I had said that before 2001, I said to you 9-11, what would you think? Pretty stupid way to say 911. Yeah. You need to be in a, a whole culture is now in on that illusion. All we have to do is say 9-11, and you know exactly what we're talking about. You can come up with a dozen other, others like that, Pearl Harbor, or Watergate, or you can invent them yourself. Those are illusions. Same thing's going on here. In the Bible, all Isaiah has to do is make an illusion, and his hearers know what he's talking about, if they're in the know, and most of them are. And so, in verse 10, he's going to say, Hear the word of the Lord. Oh, pardon me, verse 11, verse 9 is the one I meant. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Well, if you don't know about Sodom and Gomorrah, that doesn't make any sense, does it? What do you know about Sodom and Gomorrah? Wiped out. Yeah, wicked cities that were wiped out back there in early in Genesis. Okay, it's an illusion. And it used to be that I would ask groups, you know, if you don't know what that is, how would you find out? And my, I would expect the answer to be, well, you go to Bible dictionaries and Bible encyclopedias. And now... Google it. <laughs> Almost any of these you can Google and you can find it. So the illusions. Second piece is metaphor. Uh, this is verse 8. Daughter Zion. Daughter Zion is a way of saying, my dear Zion, my dear, my dear city of Jerusalem. Daughter Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a shelter in a cucumber field. Those are metaphors. Well, actually, they're similes because they use like. But whether you use similes or metaphors, what what does the what's the image? What's the image depicting? Safety. Safety. Protection. Protection. 
abandoned? Rustic. Rustic. The image can cut two ways, can't it? Both of those two lines, you've got this field and one shelter of some kind sitting in it. I remember driving by a field in Turkey on a trip we were on once and saw exactly that. Here were these fields and there'd be a little booth for the workers to shelter in in the midst of the heat of the day. But there it is, that's Isaiah 1.8, right there. But now, after those two lines, Isaiah adds one more, like a besieged city. Compare the booth in a vineyard, shelter in a cucumber field, besieged city. How does the image work now? They're trying to stand within the evil city. Trying to stand within an evil city. Yeah, actually, both of the pieces that you came up with are here, aren't they? There's some sense of shelter, and there's some sense of abandonment all around, and threat on the outside. Metaphor, images. We're going to come across images all the time, and part of the part of reading poetry is to grapple with those images and to play with the images. The very fact that you came up with a couple of different responses to what a, a booth and a vineyard would would mean says something about poetic images, doesn't it? Do they do poetic images open up possibilities or do they narrow them down? They open them up. And that's one of the things that poetry does. If the prophets just said things point blank, I would hear his word and I would say, okay, that doesn't apply to me and shut him down pretty quickly. But when he starts playing with images, the images catch me and open up possibilities for hearing. And before long, we've been hooked. Okay, so metaphor. Third piece is not typical of all poetry. It's biblical poetry that this is typical of, and other ancient Near Eastern poetry, and that's parallelism. The tendency in biblical poetry for two lines to reflect each other. There are lots of scholars will list out a dozen different kinds of parallelisms. You don't need to know all that stuff. Just need to know that two lines reflect each other. And they'll often, if one line is not clear, the other one may help expand on it for you and, and make it more clear. So, for example, this is back to verse 3. Verse 2, God said, I reared children and brought them up, but they rebelled against me. Then, the ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's crib. What are those two lines saying? Even the animals know to be appreciative. Yeah, even the animals know where their food comes from, or where the supply is going to be, and who's in charge of them, and that kind of thing. Even the, the dumb domesticated beasts, okay? And then we've got a different one after that. But Israel does not know, and then there's a parallel line too, my people do not understand. So there you've got another set of parallel lines. Israel doesn't know, my people don't understand. Those are two parallel lines saying the same thing. And then these pair, two pairs of lines are saying opposite things. The dumb animals know, but my people don't know. Watch those parallel lines. That's, that's how Hebrew poetry works, and we'll see it over and over. And if one line, again, if one line is not clear, the other one will often help you figure it out. One last piece of how, how the prophetic poetry works is watch for the word therefore. Um, this one will show up in chapter 1, verse 24. Therefore, thus says the Sovereign, the Lord of hosts, um, here's what God's going to do. Everything up to that point has been prelude, ex explanation, um, indictment, whatever else, and now comes the word therefore. Now, and here's, here's where the real rub of the word of God comes. Here's what's going to happen. So watch that word therefore. Okay. Okay, let's, we're going to walk through this chapter now and just get the feel for how the poetry works and how Isaiah works as a, as a poet and as a prophet, how he's going to convey his message. One of the things that I find fascinating and aggravating is how long it takes him to get to the point. Okay. So, we, verses 2 and 3, we've already got, okay, there's a problem with my people Israel. They are not... They don't know where their supply, where their who takes care of them. They don't get it. They rebelled against me. Verse four: Ah, sinful nation, people laden with iniquity, offspring who do evil, children who deal corruptly. 
who have forsaken the Lord, who have despised the Holy One of Israel, who are utterly estranged. What are God's people doing wrong? Everything. <laughs> Everything? Everything is not a very helpful thing. <laughs> Corruption? What kind of corruption? Forsaken God. Forsaken. Feel corruptly, so I'm going to assume that's monetary business practices. They deal corruptly, so maybe it's implying some kind of monetary, financial, something or other. Not very specific yet, is it? Despising God. Despising God. There are a million ways to despise God or disregard God. So here's the basic indictment. My people are unfaithful to me. How so, God? We're going to find out later that they've been worshiping God really well. They've been, they've been doing that just fine. So the not, the not, um, the not following who God, what God's about. It's got to be something else. Verse 5. Here's an image for you. Let me read this and then tell me what, what the image, what's the picture. Why do you seek further beatings? Why do you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick, the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it but bruises and sores and bleeding wounds that have not been drained or bound up or softened with oil. What's the picture? Desperately sick. Desperately sick? And not just sick, why, why is the person sick? They've been beaten. They've been beaten. This is, the, this is the victim of a beating. That's the picture. Here's somebody who's been all beaten up and have all these wounds that haven't been attended to. But they seek the beating. But they seek the beating. Why do you seek further beatings? Uh, please don't apply, to, apply this passage to any abuse victim. They get blamed for their abuse often enough, and that's not what's going on here. Okay? Here's the image of a beating victim and... Isaiah says, and you want more? Why, why do you want more? Who's, you won't who is learn this? your lesson. Haven't learned your lesson. Continue to rebel. You continue you to rebel. So who is this? Israel. 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 I think that's a fair conclusion. That here you have a sing the image of a single person as an image of the whole people. Are we going to distinguish between Judah and one body? Good question. That's a that's a that's an important question. Whenever you're reading these texts, when it's about, we're divided into two kingdoms, because Israel can mean either northern kingdom, and particularly when we get into chapter seven, we'll see that paralleled with Ephraim and Samaria and things like that. Or Israel can refer to the whole people of God, Israel and Judah together. So that's always a here, and and the way you would look at it is to see is there a parallel that tells us. Uh, so, so far, verse 3, Israel is paralleled with, parallel with my people. And um, Verse 1 says, concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Yeah, so Judah and Jerusalem, that's speaking to the southern kingdom. But verse, verse 3 looks to me like it's speaking to the whole people of God, north and south together, as my people. The way if, you know, if Israel were paralleled with Ephraim or Samaria or something like that, then we'd know differently. But that's a it's tricky language to watch for. So here's this image now. Isaiah's presented first the, presented the people first as a rebellious people, but we're not clear exactly how so. Now he presents the people as a beating victim that seems to want more. And again, hasn't told us how so. Verse 7. Now we get a few more specifics. Your country lies desolate, your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, aliens devour your land. It's desolate as overthrown by foreigners. What's happening? Invasion. This is an invasion. So if these, if these verses all go together, this beating victim is, is, is now set kind of parallel with the people who are being invaded. And Isaiah says, you want more? So who's invading? Who's what? Who is doing the invading? We don't know yet, do we? Yep. 
Yeah. And that actually will, it, 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 right now it doesn't matter. It will matter when we get to chapter 7. So I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> okay. Now, verse 8, And daughter Zion is left like a booth. Now we can hear this booth in a vineyard in more greater context. They're in an invasion. All that's left now is daughter Zion, like a booth in a vineyard, a shelter in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. So here's the image of Jerusalem besieged by foreign armies. Then, if the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. If God hadn't have stepped in and helped us out, we'd have been totally destroyed. Okay? What happens in verse 10 with the language of Sodom and Gomorrah? Beseeching them to have learned the lesson of Sodom and Gomorrah. Beseeches them to have learned the lesson. Yeah. He doesn't just compare them to Sodom, he calls them Sodom. Yeah, do you catch the switch in there? If God hadn't have stepped in, we'd have been as wiped out as Sodom and Gomorrah. Now listen, Sodom and Gomorrah. He just took that name of those people, that illusion, and nailed it right on them, right on us. Verse 11, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who asked this from your hand? So you've, I'm tired of your sacrifices. I've had them in plenty. You've been bringing them all the time, and I'm sick and tired of them. And that, who asked this from your hand? Who did ask them to bring the sacrifices? He did. God did. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> Well, something's happened between earlier times when God made use of sacrifice for the people's sake, um, and now it's become something that God is just sick of. Who asked of this from you? Trample my courts no more, bring, bringing offerings as futile, incense is an abomination to me, new moon and Sabbath and calling of convocations. I cannot endure solemn assemblies with iniquity. Your new moons and your appointed festivals my soul hates. They have become a burden to me, and I'm weary, weary of bearing them. I'm sick of your blended worship at, at 8.30, and of your, <laughs> your modern stuff at 9.45, and the old style, and the love of I'm sick of all of them. <laughs> Did I step on some toes? <laughs> What's God saying? They don't mean anything, okay? Well, it's all glitter and glitz and the outside things, but it's not an inner faith anymore. All glitter and glitz and outside stuff, but not an inner faith anymore, okay? Religiosity. Religiosity. So is this a matter? Is that how you hear it? Is it a matter of all being external and not of the heart? The emptiness of it. The emptiness of it. What makes it empty? There's no more. There's no contrition. No contrition? No charity. In other words, no charity. Charity is, is not the word I want. But in other words, if you if you there's iniquity and corruption, why haven't you gone out and addressed the iniquity and corruption? Why haven't you helped the people who are bleeding and in other words, you've been doing all this stuff but it hasn't made a difference in your life. You've been doing all this religious stuff, but it hasn't made a difference in your life of whatever this is, the corruption that's being described here. Yeah. The next line, when you stretch out your hands, and this is the classic Old Testament prayer posture, okay? So, when you stretch out your hands, when you stretch out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. We just got more specific, didn't we? Your hands are full of blood. Is it literal or is it a metaphor? Maybe. Did they, you know, they're doing the sacrifices and got all bloody from the sacrifice and now they didn't wash before they came into worship? Power struggle. Power struggle. Okay. The, the image of blood just made it sharper, didn't it? 
And if we're listening to Isaiah saying, okay, Isaiah, I hear what you're, you're, you're upset with us for something that we're doing or not doing. Get to the point, would you? And we're, he's leading us along, and we're, we're worshiping just fine, aren't we? We're doing everything that God asked us to do, and God says he's sick of it. Why? What's the, what's the problem here? And now he says, your hands are full of blood. And we're beginning to go gulp, because now he's starting to get to the point. And it's still, is it a metaphor or is it literal? Maybe. <laughs> yeah? Next verse. Wash your hands, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your doings from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, rescue the oppressed, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. Did we just get specific? Now we know. What's been the point of this whole sermon? What's, what, what's the nature of our rebellion? What are we doing wrong? Not caring for others. And which specific others? You oppressed the marginal, the vulnerable, the ones that are being crushed at the bottom. That's what this is all about. And seek justice. That they had turned from all the things you just said to doing things that helped them only. Mm -hmm. And that was not justice for the community. Yeah. Seeking, they've been seeking things that would, that would simply benefit them only and not turning them to justice for the community. Now, if that's not so, I think verse I think verse seventeen is where Isaiah finally gets to the point, and that's what we've been he's been drawing, pulling us along, and drawing us in with image after image and and cryptic kind of pictures. It's a, Isaiah, get to the point. What do you mean? He just got to the point, and if that point wasn't clear, he'll come back to it. So, verse 10, eighteen, come now, let's argue it out, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be like snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Here's an offering of forgiveness, an a possibility of forgiveness and cleansing. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land, but if you refuse and rebel, you'll be devoured by the sword. 21. How the faithful city, Jerusalem, has become a prostitute. She that once was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross. Your wine is mixed with water. Again, we're still piling up images again, aren't we? And then it gets specific. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not defend the orphan. The widow's cause does not come before them. So the con Once again, if we didn't get it the first time, he just hit it again. The combination of our going after our own goodies and our own financial well-being while crushing the vulnerable at the same time. Therefore, thus says the Lord. Let's pause for a moment. Anything you're observing? Anything you're, you'd like to raise in what we're seeing so far? Why is it so hard for me to think of this so long ago? It's also present in my mind, I suppose, just because of what we hear day by day by day. Yeah. But all of my imagery <clears throat> is coming so currently. Um, how can I get back into learning from way back then to what it meant then to what it means now and without getting just this imagery that constantly is there of the siege cities and the, the power struggles and the so that's what I'm having trouble with. I, I'm too um, present-day oriented right now to kind of let go of that and go, where is this coming from? Isn't it, isn't it powerful how, how present these images are right now? And I think that's part of your struggle, that you can't let go of the, what's, what's going on in the present to really attend to this in the past. That's what the prophets are about. That's exactly, that, your struggle is exactly what's supposed to happen right now. Does that make sense? Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
And when I, and when I when I, when I planned to have this series, I had no idea that this Israel Hamas war was going to start up now. Um, we certainly had other wars going on, but but that one just brings all of this stuff right smack in our faces, and it cuts all these different ways. So who's who's the invader and who's the invaded? You can read that one two different ways right now. Who's who are the vulnerable ones? Who who are the who are the innocents? Who are the ones at the bottom who are being crushed? All powers vie on another level. It's this is not this is not an ancient story. This is so the, that's and that's part of the point of reading the prophets now, is because they mirror our lives now, and God continues to speak now. You know, um, God has been changing, and so is humanity. <laughs> it looks like that we we're the same today as we were way back in the times of Israel. And God has been changing, and God keeps wanting us to learn the lesson again and again and again. That's right. This also reminds me of Jesus' time when he was fighting with the, the leaders ignoring the people. Yes. And... Um, I took a class years ago that was very depressing because every time she talked about these stories and everything, then she said, now, um, she flipped the, a map and said, who are we fighting? And it's the same thing. And during the 67 war, you know, it's just constant. It is. And we keep and we keep trading sides as to who's the oppressor and who's the victim. We just keep flip-flopping back and forth um, over and over again. Where was I going to? One of the things that the prophets capture for me, and Isaiah in particular, is the combination of our thirst for power and control and security and whatever else makes our lives, make, we think makes our life secure and, and wealthy, a combination of that with those who are being shafted at the same time. And the prophets continue to bring that in front of our eyes, and Jesus does exactly the same, as you mentioned, that if you watch Jesus and the ones that he's, the people that he's countering, it's not largely religious issues that Jesus is dealing with, it's the little ones. Who are the little ones in your midst? How do they stand? Okay, a little background about the prophets, and then we'll dive back into the text again. Um, as, as I mentioned earlier, this is a time of the divided monarchy. Um, after David and Solomon, it's split into two. You've got in the green here is the kingdom of Israel. I know you can't read all the cities back there, but you can see the green, I suspect. That's the northern kingdom, centered in Samaria. The orange here, or brown, whatever that is, the kingdom of Judah in the south, that's where the line of David continues on the throne, in Jerusalem, which is right here. Um, a few years before this, we have the first speaking, or first writing prophets. As soon as we, we, God's people, decided we need a king like all the other nations, as soon as we wanted to start building our own monarchic power and hierarchical power, uh, that's when God starts introducing prophets. Prophets come in as a check and balance on royal power. And so you'll have people like Samuel, who is the one who anoints Saul and then David. Samuel is also the one who says to Saul, to, Samuel's the one who says to Saul, uh, God's abandoned you. He's giving the kingdom to somebody else now. Nathan, David's prophet. Nathan is the one who says, oh, David, you want to build a temple for the Lord? That's a great idea. Go for it. Oh, God now tells me God doesn't need a house, but God's going to build you a house. As long as the kings are on the right track, God, the prophets support them. But as soon as David uh, rapes Bathsheba, Nathan steps in and says, you are the man. So the prophets will, will counter, will support the kings when they're on the right track, counter them when they're abusing their power. That goes along until finally we start to get these writing prophets. Whether they actually did the writing or not is not clear. Did Amos, the first of the writing prophets, write himself or did somebody else write his stuff down? 
We don't know the process exactly. But in the northern kingdom, you get Amos and Hosea, the first prophets uh, that, are, that have books about them. And the two of them lift up the two chief themes of the prophets. Amos, above all, is lifting up the poor and the disenfranchised, the marginalized, and showing that abuse of power against the, the, the marginalized, the vulnerable. Hosea is the one who lifts up our false trusts, our false gods, and shows that side of our, of our going astray. And the two of them together give the whole message. Then a few years later, prophecy moves south, and then you have two more prophets, Micah and Isaiah. Micah is a small-town guy. He lives in Morasheth, out near the, the border of... It's pretty close to Gaza now, where that's going on. Um, he's a small-town... He has a small-town perspective, and he sees the Jerusalem hotshots as all off-track and um, ready for God's condemnation for their bad leadership. Isaiah, on the other hand, is right in the center of power. He has access to the kings. He, he, he walks among the, among the halls of power and delivers his message uh, in a different way, right to the center of power. Um, my, this is one verse of Micah they lift up for you. Micah 3, verse 12. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed. That's because of the leadership. Zion will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the Lord a wooded height. What's going to happen to Jerusalem? Destroyed. Utterly destroyed. It was around the same time Isaiah was saying, God's going to step in finally and rescue Jerusalem. But, so it was right. You've got two words of God that are saying kind of opposite things. Well, a century later, in the time of Jeremiah, Jeremiah gets hauled into court because he was basically saying the same thing as Micah. And here, um, in a, somebody else steps up for, for, Isaac, for Jeremiah and says, back a century ago, Micah prophesied, and quotes that exact same verse, did King Hezekiah put him to death? Did the king not fear the Lord and entreat the favor of the Lord? And did not the Lord change his mind about the disaster he had pronounced against them? Why didn't Micah's prophecy come true? That's worth noticing that when, when God speaks a word, when the prophets speak a word of judgment like this, um, this is not necessarily the prediction of the future. This is encounter. This is intending to engage. And there's dialogue that happens. Hezekiah, King Hezekiah, is one of the heroes of the story. One who actually heard and listened. And because he heard and listened, God called back that word of doom. Then, happened later. Something similar happened in Jonah. Yes. Jonah also, you have an example of a, of a prophet whose word doesn't come true. Because the whole thing is relational. Okay. Here's the larger picture of what's going on internationally. The kings, when the kings were, kingdoms were thriving, Israel and Judah, it was in a time of a lar largely a power vacuum in the ancient Middle East. The great power centers of Egypt and um, Anatolia and Mesopotamia were all weaker at that point, and so David and Solomon and the ones who came after them could thrive and build their, their strength. Now, Assyria, headquartered in Nineveh here, was reviving its power and getting stronger and stronger and pushing in every direction. We'll see more about that in a couple of weeks when we look at chapter 7. Um, they want access to the Persian Gulf. They want access to the Mediterranean. They want control of the trade routes that go through because that's money and power. So they're, they're spreading westward and putting pressure on all these little kingdoms. And all these little kingdoms are squirming. And that's the background of what's happening in these chapters. At the bottom of the page there I put, why read Isaiah today? Part of it we've just experienced already. Truth-telling about our injustice. Truth-telling about our false trusts. This is the place where we get so uncomfortable to read the prophets because they mirror our times. Then anchoring us in the one that we can trust and give us a solid hope and a place to dwell. 
Those are the primary reasons I want to keep coming back to Isaiah. Of all of the prophets, Isaiah is the, I think it's the most marvelous and expansive. It's, people have often called it the fifth gospel, because it has so many of the, of the, thing, of the promises that find their fulfillment in Christ. Um, it's a rich, long book with lots of different themes to it, uh, themes that have become really important to the life of the church and the life of our faith. Uh, I keep going back to Isaiah over and over. It's good stuff. Chapter 2. Here is one prophecy that shows up almost word for word in two different prophets. Somebody read for us the left side. In days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be raised above the hills. Keep going. All the nations shall stream to it. Many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, and shall arbitrate for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. You wonder how long this is going to go on, don't you? <laughs> nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Thank you. Heard that passage before? <coughs> Almost word for word in Micah. Um, so who, whose word was this, Isaiah's or Micah's? The Lord's. The Lord's. <laughs> if nothing else, the fact that this shows up in two different prophets, virtually word for word, regardless of who first spoke them, tells you this is a pretty important passage. It's there in two different prophets. So what's the picture? In the time to come, the mountain of the Lord's house, what is that? Jerusalem. Jerusalem, and more specifically, the Temple, the temple. The temple Mount, Zion in Jerusalem, shall be established as the highest of the mountains. Any of you been to Jerusalem? How high is that mountain? Wimpy. <laughs> if you stand across the valley on the um, Mount of Olives, look down across, you're looking down at the Temple Mount. Not very high. In this vision, it's going to be a Mount Everest. Okay? It'll be raised above all the hills. And the effect of that raising it is what? It's like a beacon. A beacon that draws draws who? By the way, here's another of the characteristics of Isaiah. Isaiah has the most expansive and all-inclusive vision of God's purposes that we see in all the prophets. All the nations shall stream to it. Many people shall come and say, let's go to the mountain of the Lord, of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. Why? That God may teach us and that we may walk in God's paths. For out of Zion shall go forth Torah, instruction, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And the result of that is, when God's instruction goes out to all the nations, there will be true justice between the nations, true arbitration, and they'll beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. What does that mean? No more war. No more war. No more need for it. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall there learn war, learn war anymore. I haven't been to New York. I'm told that these words are printed on the wall of the United Nations building. Has anybody seen that? This has become a hope of nations. Yeah. Seen it happen yet? No. At this point, Micah has one more verse that Isaiah doesn't have, and I love it. But instead of war, they shall all sit under their own vines and under their own fig trees. No one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord, of course, has spoken. What does that add to the picture? Why no more war? We can relax and be safe. They have safety and they have plenty. Everybody has what they need and can relax in safety. No need for war anymore. 
And if that sounds utterly utopian, look how both of these passages end. O house of Jacob, come to let walk in the light of the Lord. Isaiah knows this isn't the truth right now, but let's walk in that light anyway. Let's walk in this promise. Thoughts? Questions? It's interesting that Micah says each will walk in the name of their own God. And that's, I think, what leads to all of the strife. And he's saying, but we will walk in the name of the Lord. Yeah. Yeah, and that's, that leads to some of the strife because we're all walking in the light of our own gods. And I think that would be a great verse for us to think about for our own life and our own society to ask if I'm not walking in the light of the Lord and so living out this this, this dream of justice that leads to peace um, what what are the gods that I'm serving? I think that, that's the effect of it on me. What, what are the values that I am so serving that it keeps me from, they keep me from living this justice? One thing that's, that happened to right at the beginning of the war. Um, a young man, 16 years old, lost his father and his mother. His mother died over the top of him and stopped him, him from being killed. And when he told the news person, he said, I prayed, whichever God you are, please save me. Hmm. Whichever God you are, please save me. Yeah. That's pretty potent, isn't it? It is. It's... Yeah. Um, here's John, John 12. This is the last chapter of Jesus' public ministry in the Gospel of John. Right after this, he'll withdraw in five chapters of private conversation with his disciples, the last night of his life, and then he'll go on to the crucifixion and resurrection. Um, here, is, here is John's version of Gethsemane. Jesus says, Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. What hour is he talking about? His coming death. No, it's for this reason that I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. A crowd standing there heard it and said that it was thunder. Others said, No, an angel has spoken to him. Here's what Jesus says. This voice has come for your sake, not for mine. Now, the cross, is the judgment of this world. Now, the cross, the ruler of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Lifting up from the earth means? Crucifixion. It's a pun in John. Whenever you see that lifting up, it's both... Jesus being exalted and his being crucified, which in John are the same thing. When I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. What do you see? My usual question, why is it still going on if he's taken care of? Why is it still going on? Yep. See any parallels? But in that first chapter we heard that idea that the nation of Israel has not learned. If you continue to receive beatings, you have not learned. But you also shared the idea of God teaches, God teaches, and then I don't know if you could hear him. He was saying in that, in that first chapter, uh, God was saying, my people have not learned. But Isaiah was also saying, God teaches us. Will we listen to God's teaching? Does God, will we learn? Um, just one, one quick thing about all of this is that Jesus has this nasty habit of taking end times things and moving them smack into the middle of life. So yeah, this, 
This isn't played out. Or is it? Is it playing out? Um, notice another parallel that's not underlined there. What is the mountain of the house of the Lord? The temple there is an emblem of God's presence, almost a sacrament of God's presence on earth for the, in the midst of the people. And in the Gospel of John, who is Jesus? The emblem of God's presence on earth here walking in the midst of the people. Um, Jesus is explicit, implicitly drawing that parallel that what the temple was, Jesus is. And then, just as the, as the, the, mountain, the, as the mountain of the Lord's house is lifted up above everything else, so is Jesus on the cross. And the result is all people drawn toward the presence of this God. We can spend hours on just this, of what it means for God. We're at two minutes to go, so I have to summarize this one. What it means for God to express God's self here in the world as this victim on the cross, as this one... Uh, God, God lifts up God's own self as this broken victim for us. And, and this broken heart of love that pours out for the world. And that's what draws the nations together. Um, not just in the presence of Jesus, but in who God always is in all times and places. And my people, will you listen? Will you catch on to what this is about? Will you catch on to who I am in the world? And so who you are to be in the world. We're going to do some more with chapter 2, but I think we'll just sing the song. We'll sing two of the verses. Waters of Shiloh.